I knew there was a reason I like those blue M&Ms. How about that? Hey, my name's Clay. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is great to see you. And if I haven't had the chance to uh, meet you before now, I would love to meet you afterwards. I'll be hanging around up front, and uh, feel free to stop by and say a quick hello. So this past uh, week, as I was preparing, getting ready for this message, I ran across this pretty amazing article in the New York Times, and I wanted to share with you just the first paragraph of it. And it's, uh, the title of the article is For the Love of Money. This uh, investment banker writes, he says, in my last year on Wall Street, my bonus was $3.6 million, and I was angry because it wasn't big enough. I was 30 years old. I had no children to raise, no debts to pay, no philanthropic goal in mind. I wanted more money for exactly the same reason an alcoholic needs another drink. I was addicted. We normally think of drugs, alcohol, the substance abuse, those kinds of things are the traditional, if I can use that word, traditional addictions. We don't normally think of money as having addictive powers. But if we stop and think about it, money can control us. The desire for more, $3.6 million is not enough. $4 million, $5 million. Wolf of Wall Street, 50 to $49 million wasn't enough because he wanted 52 so he could make a million dollars a week. And on and on and on. Money can control us just the way that alcohol or drugs can, and so can food, so can work, so can the internet, our grades, our desire to get into the right college or to have our kids get into the right college, our physical appearance, the clothes we wear, the color of our hair, the shape of our body, and on and on and on. All these things can conspire to control us. And as Julie was singing in that uh, Kelly Clarkson song, if we choose, we can allow other people to control us and essentially become addicted to them and to their opinions of us. And we know it's not good and we know it's unhealthy and we feel the frustration and we want to break free from that. Yet we can't in the same way as if you're dealing with a substance abuse situation. Sometimes it just seems impossible to break free from the control of those things. And letting people or things control us brings an enormous amount of pain and heartache and suffering and even discouragement and depression and worse. Over the past uh, year and a half, and really especially in the last three or four months, I've had the privilege of getting to know Michael Murphy a whole lot better. And uh, most of us know Michael as our executive pastor, but, uh, and he also has sings from time to time, does a pretty good job with that, I think. But uh, that may be because what we don't always know about him is that he used to be a fairly accomplished singer-songwriter. He was a uh, recording artist, toured a lot. And I've asked Michael to come up because he's got a pretty amazing story of uh, how, con- how uh, he allowed something to control him. And I, he wants to share that with us this morning. Thanks, Clay. <clears throat> yeah, uh, music was my life. Um, from the time I was five years old, the Beatles came to America, I was, I was hooked. And uh, I had incredible parents. Uh, my mom and dad used to say something to me all the time, always do your best, son, always do your best. 
and they were Christians, and so many times they would say, always do your best for God. But what I ended up realizing um, was that I kind of had a mislearning growing up, that I misinterpreted always do your best to I had to be the best. And so I worked, I was type A, and I tried to do the best I could in every area of my life. And uh, throughout my music career in 96, I left that to, to go to the local church and to pastor, and it even began to be more um, multiplied in this need for affirmation from people, this need to have people, you know, it's like, was it Sally Fields that said, you love me, you really love me, you know, that famous speech he had. It was very much that kind of thing that I needed to get that, and the music brought that to me. It filled that place in my life, and, and I began to be very, very uh, addicted to that. Seven years ago, um, a Saturday night after a certain, we had multiple, we had seven services of the church I was serving at in Las Vegas. A huge church, had a lot of responsibility, and I think I really thought and believed that a lot of that success of the church even was because of me and my efforts. And something hit me, and I felt really strange and really, really bad. And I thought I was having a heart attack. A friend of mine who was a doctor, uh, it was November 7th. It had to be my son Calvin's birthday. We were waiting to go with a group, our group to uh, have a birthday party with him. And I asked him to take me to the emergency room, and they checked me in. And they said, well, your EKG is beautiful, but let's run all the tests. And uh, so there I found myself. Um, flat on my back looking at the ceiling for 24 hours. I'm running all the tests on me. At the end of that next day, the doctor came and says, you know, your heart's fine, but you got to change your life because something is just eating you up and you're carrying so much stress and anxiety that it's going to kill you. And so what had happened was this need for affirmation began to shape my identity to the point where I had to be that best at whatever it was I was doing. I went to a a place called Blessings Ranch in Colorado with uh, Dr. Dr. Walker. And uh, Laura, my wife, went with me. And I, I thought I was going to an excellence week. And we sat and talked our first conversation, our first counseling session. It was a week of uh, two two-hour counseling sessions a day. And he talked about, you know, why are you here? Why do you think you need to be here? And I'm like, well, you know, I'm burning the candle at both ends. I'm carrying all this responsibility. Um, you know, people know me in the community. And, all, you know, all of these things are so important. And if you could just help me learn how to have um, discipline in my life to be able to balance my calendar and to, uh, to, to really create health, you know, in my lifestyle. And he looked over at my wife and he goes, okay, well, well, Laura, what do you want out of this week from Michael? And she goes, I just want the man I married back. And that like was uh, obviously a slug in the gut. And through that week, I began to realize that I had allowed this insatiable need for affirmation to shape my identity. And music was a big, big part of that. And so I found myself realizing what God really wanted me to do was kind of repent of all that and to lay all of that, lay myself on the altar before him, to lay my music up on the altar and go, it's not mine. My identity is not what I do. My identity is in who Christ made me to be. And so in that was a scripture that um, he, Dr. Walker referred to me that, that week that has become a real life verse to me. It says this in Isaiah 30, verses 15 and 20. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, and repentance and rest is your salvation. And quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the affliction, a water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more, and with your own eyes you will see them. So my addiction developed in my life to a point I became very perfectionistic and 
um, kind of control freak and power hungry and needing that affirmation. And what I realized, it took brokenness in my life, total surrender, that in repentance to God of all of that, in rest and in quietness and trust, that would become my strength, which in turn um, would help shape my identity. And it's a day-to-day journey that I continue to battle and fight. Um, But through our brokenness and our weakness, God is made strong. Thanks, Michael. You're only as good as your last performance. You're only as good as your last deal, as your last presentation, as your last bonus, as your last test grade, as your last, and it goes on and on and on. And it's so easy to let these things control us. It happens to me. It happens, you know, talking to people after the last couple of services, it happens to all of us at some time or another, we allow people or things to control us. But if we flip it around, you know, we do the same thing in an active sense. We try to control our circumstances. We try to control the people around us. If we took a poll, 95% of us in this Uh, you know, in the auditorium today would be type A people. You know, we live in the greater New York City area. We're always striving for success. We want to do more. We want to do better. We want to improve ourselves. We want to help our kids to improve. We want them to get into the best schools. We want to get a better job and on and on and on. And in order to do that, we feel like we have to control things. We have to control our environment. We have to control our circumstances. And sometimes we feel like we have to control the people around us. And that's not the way and we know that's not the right way to treat people yet we do it because we have this image of who we want to be and what we want to do and what we want to accomplish and so we try to control all these things and i find the same thing happening in in my own life and this was brought home to me uh, many years ago when i was in grad school uh, it was the end of the semester and I was in one of my favorite classes with one of my favorite professors who was, who was one of my favorites because he was one of the tougher professors. And I felt like if I could do well in that class, then I would have some feeling of accomplishment and success and, and, and that sort of thing. And at the end of the semester, he decided that he was going to give out awards to uh, different people in the class for different things. And they were all kind of lighthearted, humorous awards, and everybody got one. I have absolutely no recollection of what anybody else's award was, but I absolutely remember the one that he gave me. He handed me a cassette tape, which lets you know how long ago I was in graduate school, a cassette tape recording of some classical symphony. And he said, this is the conductor award because you like to orchestrate everything. You like to orchestrate your life. You like to orchestrate the class. You like to orchestrate everything. And essentially he was saying, Clay, you're a control freak. But he was doing it in a nice way. And you guys can relate to that because so often we are control freaks. But it took this professor with a humorous cassette tape gift award to wake me up to the fact that, yeah, I'm a control freak. I like to control my environment. And sometimes I like to control the people around me. And that's not the way that God would have me treat them. And when I really stop and think about it, I'm not nearly as good at controlling my circumstances or other people as I would like to think I am. And 
I don't have the kind of success as a result that I would like to think I do because I don't have the ability, if I'm honest, I don't have the ability to control these things because I'm not God. God is God and I'm not. And I need to keep reminding myself of that message over and over and over again. And this issue of control, whether it's trying to control the things and people around us or whether it is being controlled by the things and people around us, it's not new to the 21st century. It's not unique to Summit and Short Hills and Chatham and New Providence and all the, you know, this greater New York City area here. It's really been true in pretty much every culture down in, in, you know, down through time. And it started really, you know, at the beginning of time, the beginning of humanity. And I want us to look at a passage this morning from the Old Testament book of Exodus. It's a story of just uh, shortly after the Israelites had come out of Egypt. They had been enslaved in Egypt for about 400 years. And God miraculously delivered them from Egypt using a guy named Moses to lead them out. They had, on their way out, had to cross the Red Sea, which was a body of water. God miraculously parted the water so that they could cross through on dry ground. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, all his army followed after them. God caused the water to to cover them up. They ended up drowning. Uh, The Israelites were saved. Their enemies were destroyed. A couple of weeks after that, they ran out of water. God miraculously provided water for them. And And the story continues on. And we pick up the action about a month and a half or so after they had left Egypt. And they're traveling through the desert. So they're in the desert and the whole community grumbles against Moses and Aaron. And the, uh, Moses and Aaron were the leaders. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat, ate all the food we wanted, but you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Their need for food was absolutely legitimate. Nothing wrong with that. We need food if we're gonna survive. But the problem was they end up whining and complaining against Moses and Aaron, which is effectively whining and complaining against God and saying, we would rather go back to slavery or even death in Egypt than be out here in this desert where from our perspective, the situation is completely out of control because we've got absolutely no food. So rather than turning to God and say, Lord, provide for our needs as you provided water just a couple of weeks ago, and as you destroyed the entire Egyptian army just a couple of weeks before that, they did exactly what I would have done. Whine and complained that there was no food. You know, they had this legitimate need, but they weren't looking to God to meet it. Verse four. So then, they, then the Lord said to Moses, I'll rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they'll follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they're to prepare what they bring in, and that's to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites tell them, at twilight you'll eat meat, and in the morning you'll be filled with bread. Then you'll know that I am the Lord your God. So he gave them these basic instructions. Monday through, a Sunday through Thursday, you're supposed to gather enough food for that day, and there'll be more food available in the morning. Friday, 
the last day of the week from their perspective. You're supposed to gather twice as much because the next day is going to be the Sabbath and I'm not going to provide you any food there. Gather twice as much so that you can have enough for the Sabbath day. And the key to this whole thing is God is trying to show them that he's God, they're not. He's in control, they're not. He's the one who will provide for them because they can't. And so they need to trust him rather than themselves to provide for their needs. Verse 13. That evening, quail came up, covered the camp. That's where they're going to get their meat. And in the morning, there's a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. That's where this idea of manna comes from. The Hebrew word manna is an abbreviation for the phrase, what is it? So they're saying, hey, we're going to eat. What is it? It's kind of like our kids. You know, when your kids are young, mom serves something that they don't know what it is. Like, ooh, what is it? And mom says, it's called, what is it? Eat it, okay? So the Israelites, it's a similar situation. What is it? And that became the nickname for the food. And that's where we get this idea of manna, this bread that God had provided for them from heaven. So Moses says to them in the next verse, it's the bread that the Lord's given you. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need, take an omer, which is a dry measure, for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they had measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. The one who had gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Notice what happens here. They all gather differing amounts, but in some way, God worked it out that each of them had exactly what they needed. So even in this very subtle way, God's providing for them. He's controlling the situation. He's providing for their needs, and he's trying to teach them to trust in him. Verse 19, Moses says to them, no one's to keep any of it until morning. However... Some of them paid no attention to Moses, parenthetically, meaning they paid no attention to God either. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. The people wanted to control their food supply. God says, don't keep any of it till morning. I'm going to provide for you more the next day. Just like I did today, I'm going to provide for you tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. And the people said, eh, I'm not so sure we're going to hedge our bets. So they saved some of it. What do they get? Instead of manna, they get maggots. And that's, you know, it didn't work out that the way they expected it to be. So then on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, which was what God had said to do, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake, boil what you want to boil, save whatever is left, different instructions, and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, it did not get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you're to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people did the same thing. They went out on the seventh day to gather it, even though God said not to, and they found none. The Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? 
bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That's why it's on the sixth day. He gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. Watch the picture here. 400 years of slavery in Egypt, controlled 24-7 by other people. God miraculously delivers them out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. He provides water for them. He's providing food for them and on and on and on. And he says to them, I'm giving you the seventh day of every week as a day of rest. You don't have to work on that day. You don't have to go out and gather food on that day because I'm providing for you more than enough the day before and I'm gonna make sure that it doesn't spoil for you. I want you to rest because you didn't get to rest for 400 years. So that's why he provided the Sabbath for them. And he's trying to teach them to trust in him, the God who brought them out of Egypt, the God who gave them the Sabbath rest, the God who gave them this bread from heaven. And he's saying, just trust me. Don't try to control the situation. Do it my way and you're gonna be so much better off. And what did they do? They did the same thing they had done earlier in the week. They decided we're gonna do it our way and they faced the consequences. Jump ahead, let's jump ahead 40 years. The Israelites are about to leave the desert. They're about to cross into the promised land, this land that God had said he was gonna give to them as their inheritance. And they're gathered on the border and Moses says to them, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years? to humble you, to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors has known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. If you were here two weeks ago, we ran into that verse on the lips of Jesus. When Jesus was tested by the devil in the desert, He's hungry. The devil says to him, you're the son of God. You can turn these stones into bread. And Jesus' response is to quote this passage where he says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Did the Israelites need bread? Absolutely. Did Jesus need bread? Absolutely. Do we need bread? Absolutely. But God's point is even more than bread We need him. Even more than the basic necessities of life, we need that spiritual nourishment, that spiritual sustenance. We need to trust him. We need to allow him to be in charge, him to be in control, rather than trying to do it ourselves or looking to somebody else or something else to meet our needs. Israel was supposed to learn that lesson and to some extent they did and to some extent they didn't. Jesus got it. Jesus lived it. And as a result of who he is and what he's done, we can have that right and restored relationship with God assuming we decide that, yeah, I'm gonna trust him rather than myself or rather than anyone or anything else uh, to, to control my life and really to meet my needs. And so we ask ourselves, okay, so how does this make a difference in my life today? How do I apply this to my life? And I think the place to start is by examining our heart. I need to stop and examine my heart. I need to ask myself, where are my biggest battles for control? Either because I'm fighting, because 
I've allowed someone or something to control me or because I'm trying to control my situation, my circumstances, or the people around me. And just as it, it, it took a professor to point out to me, a friend, I, I count him as a friend now, to point out to me this blind spot in my heart, we've all got those blind spots in our hearts. And so I think where, where we begin with that is to stop and pray and to ask God to show us our hearts. Look at uh, here from Psalm 139. David writes, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. First step, just stop and ask God to show you your heart because you're like me. I rationalize. I come up with excuses. I'm blind to my own weaknesses, sometimes because I'm actually blind and sometimes because I'm willfully blind. I need to stop and pray and ask God to reveal my heart to me. Sometimes it's helpful also to stop and to ask yourself some questions like, when do I get angry? What frustrates me? What makes me afraid? What makes me discouraged or depressed? Because sometimes these emotions reveal different battlegrounds for control in my life. If I'm angry or frustrated, maybe it's because you're not doing what I want you to do or because my circumstances are not the way that I want them to be. Or if I'm, if I'm afraid or if I'm discouraged, maybe it's because I feel like someone else or something else is either trying or succeeding in controlling me and I can't do what I want to do because you or somebody else or something else is standing in my way or I don't like what's happening to me and I'm scared of what's gonna happen tomorrow because I'm out of control of the situation. So whenever these emotions arise, anger, fear, and, and so on, stop and ask yourself and say, is that kind of like the warning light on the dashboard that says something is wrong deeper down inside? Maybe it's a control kind of a situation that I'm dealing with. Ask people you know to give you feedback. Sure, your spouse, sure, your kids especially would be quite happy to tell you, mom, dad, you're a control freak. Give them permission to do so and you may be, actually you won't be surprised because you probably already know it to some extent. Ask your friends, ask your boss, ask your coworkers, ask somebody who you trust, who you know loves you to say, where do you see in my life me trying to control things that I'm really not capable of controlling or me looking to someone or something else to meet needs that ultimately they're not really capable of meeting and thus I'm in some sense giving them control over me or at least over part of my life. Let me take a quick time out here. If you in examine your life, or maybe you already know it, if you've got a substance abuse problem, something physical going on there, let me encourage you to seek out medical help. And if you need a recommendation, Rich or I or Michael, we would be happy to recommend a counselor or a medical professional who can be helpful to you because there's some things that absolutely require you know, some sort of medical intervention in that. I'm a pastor. I'm not qualified in some of those other areas. I want to focus on the spiritual, but I don't want to ignore the physical as well. But if you do realize that there's a physical component to an addiction or a control issue that you have, recognize that there is always a spiritual issue involved. There's always something involving my heart. The manifestation may be in the physical realm, but there's always something going on in the spiritual realm. So don't, don't ignore the spiritual aspects when you're examining your heart. 
So after we've examined our hearts and we've seen the different areas in which we're struggling, which we're fighting for control, we need to stop and make a choice. We need to choose consciously to trust God. We need to choose to follow him. We need to choose to look to him to meet our needs. We need to choose to let him be God, to let him be in control of our lives. And and choosing to trust God involves making a decision first to know what his standards are, the way he says life ought to be lived, the way that he says the world has been created to be, and then choosing to agree with that and live in light of it, even when it's not easy, even when it's not convenient, even when it hurts in some ways, even when it's costly. We need to stop and let God be God and say, okay, I trust you, even though I don't fully understand it, I trust you because you're God and I'm not. Choosing to trust God means looking to him to meet our needs. And that's what he was trying to teach the Israelites with the manna in the wilderness. Because whenever we look to someone or something to meet our needs, we are in some sense giving them some aspect of control over our lives. If I look to you to tell me who I ought to be, I'm giving you some control over my life. If I look to a substance to escape pain that I'm dealing with, I'm giving that substance some measure of control over my life. If I look to my job as my ultimate measure of success in who I am, I'm giving that job control over my life. If if my motto is, I'm only as good as my last performance, then it's the audience, the applause, the bonus, the grade on the test that effectively controls my life. And do I want those things controlling my life? No, of course not. Yet we do it time and time and time again. But when we choose God, when we choose to trust God to meet our needs, that's when we find freedom. That's when we find hope. That's when we find peace. That's when we find healing. And that's when we find really true success. I love the verse that Michael shared earlier from Isaiah chapter 30. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance, which is turning away from the wrong direction we're heading, and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. I need to trust that God knows more than I do, that God is more capable than I am, that he loves me, that he cares for me more than I can imagine. I need to trust that God has my best interests in his heart, that he wants to bless me in ways that I can't even imagine. And when I do, when I make that conscious decision to trust him, that's when I find that I win the battle for control because I'm turning control over to really the only one who's capable of controlling my life, who's capable of meeting my needs, who's capable of helping me to be the person whom he created me to be. Let me pray for us. 
Father, it is so easy for me, it's so easy for all of us to either try to control our circumstances and the people around us or to let our circumstances and the people around us control us. It is so easy to look either to ourselves or to someone else or to something else to meet our needs when if we stop and think about it, we don't have the capacity to do that because that's not who you created us to be. You created us to depend on you, to look to you, to trust in you. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to do that. Help us to see you as the one who is ultimately trustworthy. Help us to see the weaknesses in our hearts. Help us to turn away from that, to turn to you, to trust you. And when we do, I pray that we would find peace, that we would find rest, that we would find fulfillment, and that we would find the joy that you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for coming out this morning, and I hope you have a wonderful week.